Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me two of my brilliant colleagues, Bam Janice and Jim McLaughlin. Our topic for today is I-140 issues and recent adjudication trends in the adjudication of I-140 petitions. So to get started, in terms of the overview, what exactly is the purpose of the I-140 petition? Really, it is for an employer to sponsor an employee for permanent employment with the business. I guess other ancillary benefits are it helps to establish that the employee or beneficiary meets all of the requirements which are set forth in the ETA 9089, which is the PERM application, if it is a PERM-based form, PERM-based filing, rather. And it also helps to establish that the employer is a bona fide employer that is capable of meeting the ability to pay the required wage to the employee or employees. And finally, it also helps to evidence the intent of the beneficiary or the employee to want to reside permanently in the U.S. and work with that particular employer. Well, who files? As I just explained, it's always an employer. That's a U.S. employer. Um, in some cases, the I-140 petition can be filed by the individual, and it's called referred to as self-petitioning, and that's only in the two cases of the extraordinary ability, the EB-1 case or the EB-2 national interest waiver cases. So, Jim, let's get started with you then. What exactly is required procedurally for an I-140 filing? All right, well, on its face, it's pretty simple. And what are we talking about I-140? So, obviously, we're going to have the form of an I-140. And if you're using representation or attorney, you're also going to have a G-28 there. So, if we're filing your petition for you, obviously, a G-28 will be included. And that also helps if there's an RFE or communication. We'll also receive copies of those. There's the filing fee currently. Uh, it's $580. And what's the basis of every I-140 except a few exceptions is the labor certification. So you need the original signed labor certification, which is also called the PERM application. You'll need an I-140 petition letter from you, the employer, stating the company's background, explaining the job, and how the beneficiary qualifies for the position as described on the labor certification. You also need to include supporting evidence showing the beneficiary qualifies for the position as described on the labor certification, so education and experience documentation. And finally, you need financial documentation to prove that as the employer, you do have the ability to pay the proffered wage that's listed on the labor certification. Okay. And something yeah. about that priority date that's mm -hmm. coming a lot, up a lot now um, as a recent trend, because there are so many companies that are doing EB2 upgrade cases um, where they're seeking to retain a priority date from a previously filed case, sometimes USCIS can get confused and they'll ask for ability to pay from that old priority date, which may have come from a different company altogether. So it's important that you have to be able to show the ability to pay from the filing date, the priority date of the labor certification that you're basing this I-140 on, not on the priority date of a previous case. And if you get a request for evidence from USCIS, you need to explain that. Yeah, and That's I think right, and we've actually written an article 
uh, in the Murti uh, Bulletin, specifically saying that USCIS can issue RFEs in error, asking for information which is improper or incorrect. And this here is a classic example of something that can happen. And to continue uh, the issue, what Jim just pointed out about the G28, you know, having an, a law firm like the Murti Law Firm helping you can be very useful because in case of a, uh, the postage being lost in the mail or whatever, having a lawyer getting the original documents and the company getting a second backup is wonderful because then the ch likelihood of b both parties losing it or misplacing it hopefully is almost non-existent. Right, absolutely. And something else to consider um, as part of your standard for what to file is sometimes things change from the time that the labor certification was originally filed to when you're actually going to file the I-140. It may be that the company's name has changed or the address has changed or they've undergone some sort of merger acquisition. If anything like that has changed, you need to provide evidence of that corporate change and show that the company, the petitioner that exists, is still continuing the sponsorship is still able to continue the sponsorship. So that's another example of something that you need to include with an I-140. Yep, makes perfect sense. So Pam, let's go on to you. Uh, is the option of premium processing available for I-140s and when does it work and when does it not work? I-140 premium processing is available for most cases. There are a few minor exceptions. Um, but you are going to be able to do so by including a Form I-907 along with the premium processing fee, which is currently $1,225. They keep increasing those fees all the time. They do. They like the money. Um, but the benefit of it is that you get, an you get an adjudication, approval, denial, or a request for evidence within 15 calendar days, which is just really fantastic compared with standard processing for an I-140 is currently running six to eight months on average. Um, a lot of people are nervous about um, doing premium processing because they think, oh, it's more likely to get an RFE or a denial or greater scrutiny. But quite honestly, in practice, we haven't seen that. If you're getting an RFE on the premium processing, odds are you were going to get it on the regular processing as well. The primary benefit of the premium processing is it's faster. Um, the if you do receive a request for evidence, um, that basically puts a hold on the clock for uh, until you respond. When you do respond, USCIS will then make a decision within 10 days. The only exception is if there is some kind of security issue. That's what they call it. They don't tell you what it is. But if there is some kind of investigation of the employer or the employee where there's a security or fraud issue, then your premium processing time clock is stopped until that is resolved. And they don't give back your 12 $1,225 either because they say that's your fault and not our problem. Basically, they just say that the clock is frozen until it's resolved, and then once it's resolved, the clock starts up again, and then they have to resolve it within 10 days. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you don't actually know when it gets resolved, so it's kind of tricky. Um, there are a couple instances where premium processing that would normally be available is no longer available. Uh, for one, if, the, um, if there's a pending appeal uh, for another I-140 with the same employer and the same employee, even if it's a completely unrelated case, different labor certification, if you've got an appeal, USCIS is currently taking the approach that you cannot use premium processing for that I-140. Um, 
Now, this only applies if it's the same employer, same employee. If you have a case with a different employer where there's an appeal, that should not prevent you from getting premium processing, although sometimes USCIS does get confused. Um, the other instance is uh, if the original labor certification is not included with that I-140 um, submission, for example, if um, you're refiling a denied I-140 or a withdrawn I-140 or if you're filing an amended I-140 after a, uh, a successor in interest corporate change that's taken place, then in that instance you would not initially be able to um, file with premium processing because you don't have the original labor certification in hand. Uh, the other example would be if for some reason the labor certification was lost. Um, Department of Labor said they sent it out but you never received it or you received it and in the crazy shuffle a couple pages got lost. If you don't have the complete original labor certification when you filed then you can't initially request premium processing. Um, but if you are doing a refiling um, USCIS has indicated that if you give them time to get the original labor certification from that other file, then you can potentially later upgrade to premium processing, basically around after like six months of it being pending. Well, that sounds seems to defeat the very purpose of premium processing, but it makes sense because they can't premium process it if they don't have the original documents. And if I can just issue a quick uh, clarification, I know when Pam talked about the huge benefits of premium processing, um, there's actually a huge benefit in some cases if uh, some of the employees have children who are growing older under the Child Status Protection Act or CISPA because... The longer the I-140 petition is pending, the better off we are to not premium process the case because those many months, those six or eight months that Pam just mentioned, it adds back to the age of the child. And so it can be a huge benefit to, and strategically, we would actually advise the, the, the client and say, please don't premium process your case, even though you're dying to find out if your I-140 is going to get approved because those six or eight months of preserving your age, child's uh, age uh, can be extremely helpful, especially in a case where those few months makes a difference. Yeah, correct. That's part of the reason why we always look at the age of the children and whether the case is an EB2 or EB3. But even with that, there may still be a benefit to uh, doing premium processing. You know, you may have to decide whether it may be that you need an approved I-140, for example, to extend your H-1, and you may not have time for regular processing to do that. So in a situation like that, you may have to weigh the cost-benefit of being able to maintain your H-1 status in the short term versus potentially adding some additional time for your children to potentially be able to join you in the green card down the road. So it's it's an important thing to consider. You can understand case. why you need brilliant attorneys like the Murthy Law Firm attorneys <laughs> to help you with your I-140 <laughs> petition because there's a pro, then there's a con, and then there's an exception to the con, and then there's an exception to the exception of why something <laughs> should apply. And that's what a good lawyer would really sit down and analyze it to help the company and the individual employees to get the answer that we need. Jim, if we can move, uh, come back to you, which is with an I-140 petition, we need certain education and experience evidence. Can you briefly go over what is the evidence that we need to submit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in most I-140 filings, you're basing it off a PERM application, so the original labor certification. In that original labor certification, you would have listed the very specific minimum requirements for the position. 
Now, the beneficiary listed on the labor and now in the I-140 needs to be able to document that they actually possess those minimum requirements that were listed on the labor certification. So if there was a degree requirement, you need to show um, their diplomas or degrees. You need to show tran transcripts. If it's a foreign degree, you need to make sure you have a viable credentials valuation that qualifies a person for the position. Uh, additionally, often there's experience requirements, so you need experience letters from the former employers or colleague affidavits or sometimes even secondary evidence. Okay, that's a good broad overview and uh, jumping on from the education and experience evidence to the ability to pay criteria that needs to be satisfied, Pam, can you briefly touch upon that and then we'll get into the details in a minute? Sure, yeah, like we said, USCIS looks at the company's ability to pay from the time the labor certification was filed moving forward throughout the process. And so they will specifically look at wages paid to the sponsored individual, um, and then whatever gap there is between the offered wage and what they're being paid, uh, the employer should be able to cover through either their net income or their net current assets. And in evaluating that, USCIS will look at the company's tax returns for the most, rec most recent year and any years since then, um, the W-2s, of course, of the individual, um, and audited financial statements um, not reviewed or annual reports for the company. Uh, if the company has more than 100 employees, uh, you can include a letter from the chief financial officer uh, confirming the company's ongoing ability to meet its wage obligations. But unless it's a, a super big, <laughs> well-known company, a lot of times USCIS will, if you just submit that letter, ask for the other documentation as well, the audit of financial statements, tax returns, or annual reports. And part of it is that they are not familiar with the USCIS or legacy INS memo, which allowed the CFO statement uh, to be produced because a lot of the younger, more junior officers aren't trained and don't completely appreciate the list of documents that USCIS in various times has agreed with uh, the American Immigration Lawyers Association as being acceptable documents. So if we send something and the government comes back and says, not good enough, give me something more, we try to appease them by giving it, even though technically we could challenge them and throw the memo back at their face and say, guys, haven't you read the own mem your own memo from years ago? But sometimes it's easier just to give it, give them something and then hope that we get an approval because our goal ultimately is to try and get the approval for the client. And it may be also that that primary evidence is not available yet. You know, the, the company hasn't filed their tax returns yet. It's too early in the year, in which case you need to basically explain why that primary evidence that USCIS is expecting is not available. And then you can try and submit secondary evidence like profit and loss statements, reviewed statements, uh, bank accounts. But quite honestly, they have very limited value to USCIS at this point. USCIS is taking a very hard line approach, expecting those primary financial so documents. So tax returns are your ideal, ideal, the latest and the, since tax the day returns, that the labor certification was filed. Tax returns, audited financial statements, or annual reports, all equally acceptable. Wonderful. Okay, so Jim, let's get, get to you with a little more details, if you can, about the ability to pay issue. Sure. One of the most common RFEs that we see uh, with I-140s is the ability to pay. Now, ideally, you would have looked at your ability to pay in the documentation you have when you were originally drafting a labor certification. Um, however, if you had not, um, then it comes up in the I-140 in an RFE. Um, and with the RFE, as Pam said and Sheila mentioned as well, you need to be able to show the ability to pay the proffered wage from the labor certification 
to present and ongoing until the individual receives their green card. Um, now you can do that through, if you're paying the individual already, you can show their W-2s and their pay statements. If not, as mentioned, uh, tax returns, uh, profit and loss statements possibly. Uh, but you need to look at the net income or net current assets. And ideally those are beyond the difference between what you're already paying the individual and the proffered wage. Um, keep in mind that if you're sponsoring multiple beneficiaries, the responsibility to prove your ability to pay becomes cumulative. Um, so some RFEs that we see in the past year have greatly increased is RFEs to pay everybody. So everybody you've sponsored. So a good practice tip is to keep track of the number of beneficiaries you've sponsored and what the prevailing wage is, what you're actually paying them, and to make sure your finances, net income, and current assets cover that gap uh, for all of your beneficiaries. Another good practice tip is to possibly withdraw I-140s as needed. Um, for instance, say an individual's left the left your company and they, you don't plan to hire them back or they don't plan to come back, then withdrawing that I-140 may lessen the calculation of your ability to pay everybody. Additionally, another example is if the job opportunity is no longer valid. Um, say the person's been promoted and you filed another labor certification for them, then you can withdraw that previous I-140. Um, now, one thing to keep in mind is as you withdraw the I-140s, you want to maintain, uh, keep track of the people you are sponsoring and make sure you are financially able to pay the wages for everybody. And, you know, one of the, the, the issues, I guess, that, that people sometimes say is um, many of the large companies try and tend not to withdraw the I-140 petition um, because their attitude is, you know, we're using your employee now and you could be using our employee. And by withdrawing it, you're now preventing possibly taking advantage of the AC-21 Adjustment of Status Portability benefits. And you're really screwing the employee over and really jeopardizing and harming um, the overall sort of free movement of employees. Um, and so this could actually, so, but, but that works with very large companies that don't have issues with the ability to pay. The smaller, mid-sized companies sometimes do have the potential financial issues. And so it ends up becoming a double-edged sword where they have to withdraw it to be able to meet the financial ability to pay test that Jim uh, just mentioned. Well, a lot of companies are concerned um, about withdrawing I-140s because their employees are worried about, um, you know, who are leaving them uh, about, oh, I might lose my priority date or this might affect my 485 that's pending. But, you know, they're generally... You if the I-140 is approved, you can still retain that priority for sub subsequent cases. And depending on where you are in the process, you may still be eligible for AC-21. So it's a good idea if employers are getting those questions from their employees to talk to their attorney and to see, you know, is this actually going to be an issue or not? Okay. Absolutely, Ben. Yeah, okay. And, you know, just to follow up with what both Pam and uh, Jim just talked about, the financial documents, because it is a big deal, and we find that majority of the I-140 denials or RFEs that we see at the multi-law firm <clears throat> when people come to us from other law firms or other lawyers is where the documents were incomplete or incorrect. So, again, to stress... The employer has to submit, you as the employer or the business or the company has to submit the federal tax returns or the audited financial statements or the annual reports if you're a much larger company and you have annual reports. The USCIS, of course, focuses on net profits and net current assets. 
And as Pam had previously mentioned, that the secondary evidence that could be included are profit or loss statements, bank statement, lines of credit, capital infusions into the company, et cetera. But these are not guaranteed to work, and you could still end up getting a denial or an RFE if you're lucky to get a second RFE at times, and you're not. So you're better off not relying on secondary evidence. Uh, because the bottom line with secondary evidence is it must establish that the company can clearly fund the wage, the entire prevailing wage for the employee, and also an employer that fails to pay the entire proffered wage uh, or the entire prevailing wages required by Department of Labor will reflect poorly on the employer's ability or intention to pay that prevailing wage when the employee obtains permanent residence, particularly if the employee has already been working in the sponsored position for that for the green card sponsoring employer. Okay, so now let's get into details, uh, if we can, Pam, uh, on the educational equivalency. Okay, well, education, I think, is where the I-140s get really, really interesting. We've seen USCIS uh, become increasingly strict in their evaluation of what foreign education is equivalent to U.S. education. Uh, likewise, we've seen USCIS looking even at U.S. education to see whether or not it's accredited. So education is a hot topic, and it's something that needs to be looked at up front before the labor certification is even filed. Because, again, this is a major thing where we see a lot of people coming to us years later. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we can't change USCIS's mind about what foreign education is equivalent to U.S. education. And you can lose a lot of time and a lot of money. So it's a good idea to look at it up front. And, you know, my father was a civil and structural engineer. And as the basic rule 101 is, you want your foundation to be rock solid before you build more and more and more rooms in a house. And so what Pam is basically saying is, Whatever we do, if the education requirements are not met, then you come to us and we might be the world's best law firm or best lawyers. We can change what already the mistakes that have occurred in the un original filing at the I-140 stage because we've inherited potential problems at that point. Right. Yeah. If we didn't bake the cake, then it's very difficult for us to put the frosting on it. Um, <laughs> so the problem is, is that different countries have very different degree paths, um, different educational systems. And so it's important to look at what is the structure of education in that country and how does it compare with the U.S. structure. So, for example, a three-year bachelor's degree from the U.K. is generally considered to be equal to a U.S. bachelor's degree, whereas a three-year bachelor's degree from India is not equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's degree. And that's because of the underlying education before you even get into that university. So it's important to look at the structures and, and make that comparison. So um, you're saying, but if the person in both countries, if there's a 12-year education, it would make a difference? Or you're saying because in, in the United Kingdom, there's a 13-year? Correct, because mm -hmm. the UK has 13 years prior to going into the three-year ah. program, whereas the whereas India has a 10 plus 2 program similar to the similar US 12-year mm. program. Mm -hmm. So, um, But there may be additional education beyond that bachelor's degree that in itself might be equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's degree. For example, a three-year Indian bachelor's degree that is followed by a two-year Indian master's degree uh, is generally considered to be equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's degree. And one year towards the master's. Correct. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's important to look at each individual situation um, and make the comparison and obtain a 
credential evaluation that is um, that is following the format that USCIS is looking for and analyzing what that underlying pre-college education is, how many years did it take to complete that educational program, and how many years did they actually spend, what the fo- where the degree focus was, et cetera. Um, so you should be using a reputable professional credential evaluator. And um, generally, they should be following the standards of um, the American Association of Collegiate Registrars, um, ACRO, which ha- maintains a educational credentials database called EDGE. And USCIS will go to EDGE to verify the information and the credential evaluations that you're providing. Um, I know that we here at the Murthy Law Firm, we have a subscription to EDGE that we use in evaluating people's credentials because like it or hate it, this is what USCIS considers their new Bible, Quran, Tao Te Ching, whatever it is um, that they're following. Bhagavad Gita. (laughs) This is what they follow when they're evaluating, uh, evaluating foreign education. Okay, well, that's helpful. It's a little scary because uh, it seems like, you know, the EDGE database, again, costs several thousands and thousands of dollars. And rather than a company having to invest in that for one particular employee, if you hopefully work with a law firm like the Muti Law Firm, we already have invested the thousands and thousands of dollars to getting that database so that we can turn around and use it for the benefit of our companies and their employees. Jim, if I can come back to you about the experience evidence, can you give give a little sort of overview of what specific is the best evidence and then the secondary evidence, et cetera? Sure, absolutely. Uh, With the I-140, if we're filing it or, you know, if we haven't filed it and there's an RFE that comes to us to help resolve, the issue with experience off. USCIS is looking for two uh, primary evidence for the experience. So they're really looking at either an experience letter from the previous employers or to look for colleague affidavits. Um, with the letter from the employer, it needs to give all the required information USCIS is looking for. They're looking for it to be on company letterhead. They want it signed by a signatory authorized from the company. They want it stating the employee's name, the dates of employment, the job title, and specifically the job duties. Additionally, if there are any special requirements on that labor certification, you need those listed in these experience letters as well. Uh, If you're looking at the colleague affidavits, because for whatever reason the employer letter is not sufficient or is just not available, which sometimes happens, then you need all that same information. But in addition to that, uh, the colleague affidavits need to show the relation or explain the relationship between the affiant, the person signing the affidavit, um, and the beneficiary, and they need to be notarized. To prove okay. that, to prove that is the individual who's actually signing, okay. um, you can also include secondary evidence. But keep in mind, uh, pretty much USCIS, if you only submit secondary evidence, USCIS really is not going to accept it. They can issue an RFE saying, "Do you have the primary evidence, employer experience letter, or colleague affidavits?" But if, say, you have uh, a letter and colleague affidavits, but something is lacking, or you just want to supply more evidence, secondary evidence you can include could be W two showing you were working there pay stubs, an offer letter, resignation letter, um, that helps to show the individual, the beneficiary, was actually there. Okay. Uh, that's certainly helpful. Pam, do you want to add something? About, yeah, the, the thing about the colleague affidavits is, you know, even though it's in the regulations, even though there is case law, USCIS, they don't really like them. And so it's important to make every effort to try and obtain those letters. And if you can't obtain the letters, 
in addition to the colleague affidavit, have an affidavit from the individual explaining, I tried, but the company no longer exists. I couldn't track anything down. And here are people that I worked with who they knew that I worked there. And here's also all of this secondary evidence showing, yes, I really did work there. Um, a lot of times people are needing these secondary evidences uh, or the affidavits because their old employer has a standard policy. They will only confirm the dates. They will only issue a certificate that confirms limited information. And so despite the employer's be- the employee's best inf- efforts, they haven't been able to get the document in the format USCIS is looking for. So knowing that USCIS, even though they should accept the affidavits, even knowing that they don't really like it, it's a good idea to make every effort to try and get that letter. And only if you can't get that letter, document the fact that you can't and provide as much corroborating secondary evidence that Jim has described to the USCIS. Very good point. In fact, one of the questions I was going to ask was exactly what Pam said, which is, you know, a lot of companies have a policy that we will not provide a lot of information because lawsuits or company policy that we will just give dates. Or sometimes they say, well, you should have taken it when you were an employee. Now that you've left us, we don't give it. It's our standard policy. We'll just give dates and title and salary and nothing more. And so then having all that extra information from a colleague will certainly go a long way. Pam, um, what is a VIBE RFE and when do you get it? And what can an employer do to try and overcome an RFE like that? So VIBE RFEs, they tend to come in waves. Um, you'll see a brief period where you see a whole lot of them and then a long stretch where you don't see any. But um, the VIBE database is uh, its a mechanism for USCIS to basically verify that the employer is who they say they are and they're doing business in the way that they say. And this database is maintained by Dun & Broadstreet and um, it's not always accurate. Um, so if you do receive one of these VIBE uh, RFEs, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to educate USCIS about your company's operations, and it's an opportunity for the employer to actually contact DMB um, and you know, find out what it is that they're saying and correct it. Uh, a lot of times when employers do that, they see that they have old addresses listed on there or the number of employees was reflective of 10 years ago. So um, there's actually in a page on the USCIS website uh, where they have a link to um, how you can access and review and correct your information in the DMB um, uh uh, their their vibe database. Okay, thank you. And I know another issue that's become very hot and common, both in the H-1B context and spilling over now to the immigrant petition, I-140 context, is the entire issue of the employer-employee relationship, the control, you know, why the heck should we approve your I-140, etc. So can you describe a little bit of what's going on with that whole issue? Sure. And again, this is one of those trends that comes in waves uh, where sometimes it's an over-eager uh, adjudicator who is aware of the Newfeld memo on employer control in the context of H-1B, which is a very different area of law. And so sometimes they're asking for things that have nothing to do with the labor certification that is underlying this I-140 and, and quite honestly, in some cases are inappropriate for an I-140 petition. But also, sometimes these RFEs 
are fishing expeditions where the officer, they're looking into the company because they have concerns about the employer's H-1B practices. And so they're looking for something that they can use to potentially spur uh, an FDNS, a fraud detention and uh, national security investigation of the employer. So if an employer is receiving an RFE like that, it's important to look very carefully at it. Um, is this a trend? Is the employer receiving multiple of these RFEs? And it's an opportunity to look at their H-1B practices to make sure that, you know, that there is the right uh, H-1B approval notice and LCA for the work site, that the employer maintains policies and procedures to supervise and control the work of the employee even at the client's site. But it's also important to look at how you're responding. Just because USCIS is asking for something doesn't mean that you have to provide it. If it's something that is inappropriate or immaterial to the case at hand, there's actually a USCIS memo on this that says that the officers are not supposed to go on fishing expeditions, that the things that they're asking for should be necessary for the adjudication of that specific petition. So it's important to look carefully at what they're asking for and pick what you're going to provide to them equally carefully. Well, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, in a strange way, uh, we for those who don't focus, because we don't really focus on this since a majority of the cases that are being sponsored for permanent residence or green card and the filing of I-140 petitions is done by employees where the employer is actually hiring the employee at present. But as most of us know, the green card is based on the concept of a future job offer, unlike the H-1B petition. And so, really, the employer and employee don't have to have any kind of employer-employee relationship at the present time because it's a future job offer, and therefore, the labor certification in I-140 can be filed based on this concept of a future employer-employee relationship that is going to be established. But since, as they say, little knowledge is dangerous, so presumably some of the immigration officers have a little bit of knowledge, have read, heard about the H-1B Newfeld memo from January 2010, and so they think they need to get into this fishing expedition. And if you have a good lawyer on your team uh, fighting for your company, we can absolutely challenge them and say, guys, you're barking up the wrong tree. Sorry, you don't have a business asking this. But here anyway is what the law requires. Here's the answers that you're asking for and hoping that we can try and get the approval for you. Now, I know we're always cognizant of the time, and it's just about 30 minutes, and we try to wrap up between 30 to 45 minutes, so we're right on target. Um, we've sort of gone over with you with Jim McLaughlin and Pam Janice, a broad overview of the I-140 petition and the kinds of issues that commonly come up and the RFEs, and we've talked about all of this. Uh, rule 101, the best way to ensure that you have a very strong I-140 petition is to make sure as we discussed earlier, that your underlying labor certification is rock solid and strong. Uh, as you can see from our discussion, there are rules and then there is an exception to the rule and then there's an exception to the exception for that rule. And you cannot figure it all out unless you have a strong legal team working with you. We at the Murthy Law Firm, of course, focus our entire time, effort, and energy with brilliant legal minds that we hire the best and the brightest lawyers from around the country who are so important and part of helping our clients accomplish their goals and their dreams of being successful and creating new jobs and expanding. And so we hope that if you ever process an I-140 petition or need our help, that you will contact 
the best law firm in the world on U.S. immigration law matters to work with you as you continue to grow in a tough, challenging economic environment to help bring the best and brightest candidates from around the world to make your business stronger and better. We are always so honored and pleased to help you. Have a wonderful day. And on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team and family, we wish you a wonderful day. Thank you.